Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Today is a Tuesday episode, but uh, yesterday was Memorial Day, so we're recording on Tuesday. This will run on Wednesday, but uh, it is the usual Hugo and me uh, bullshitting for 40 minutes. <laughs> bullshitting. Podcast as opposed bullshitting. to um, me asking other people questions. Um, okay, so even though it's Wednesday. Yeah. Well, you were going to say something else. No, go ahead. You, uh, even though it's Wednesday and Succession ended on Sunday... I think it's still relevant. You think it's well? I mean, it's the last one ever, so yeah, that's it. Know. This is it. Now, look, put it this way: there were still today, Tuesday, when we're recording, the papers were filled with succession stories. So, I, did I, you read any of them? Yeah, I read some of them. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. What I, was interesting to you to read? What did you want to like? Um, I mean, a lot of them sort of got to the same point that we've already talked about here and already knew. But there was like an interview today with the guys that played Greg and Tom in the Times, and I thought that was they were both reasonably entertaining and forthcoming. Um, Kurt Anderson, who I guess is your old boss. I never actually worked for him, but I know Kurt pretty well, and uh, I, I, I consider him a sort of peer, yeah. He had a, a piece in the Times yesterday, maybe, an op-ed piece that uh, was one of those, I guess it's very Kurt Anderson. It seemed smart when I read it. Now I can't recall at all what it was about. <laughs> but when I read it, I liked it. Um, Go back and read the piece. It says something intelligent, but yeah. we're not sure so, what. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, I am going to uh, grant uh, the motion to talk about succession. Okay. So uh, just to put it in a little context for our episode, we're really going to talk about the power of stories. We're going to talk about summer reading and books and, and, and all that. But we're starting with succession, obviously, because it just happened. But also because it's right on this topic, too, which is like, why did this story kind of take over the culture to the extent that it did? And how do we feel about it now that it's gone? Sure. So That's a good question. Go ahead. All right. Well, look, for, first, what do you think of the ending itself? Well, I, I want to know what you think. All right. I, I mean, I enjoyed watching the episode. But I got to the end. I'm like, okay, it's over. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. In a weird way, a couple of weeks ago, we discussed how we thought the last scene might be or last episode might be. And even though we didn't get it exactly right, we got it a little too right in the sense of because it basically was what we said, which is the point of the show is that these kids can't win because they're always going to be miserable because they have the wrong priorities in life. And the final point of the show has to be to sort of confirm that um, they would lose in some setting. And we said a, a boardroom helipad, whatever, and it turned out to be the boardroom. So the way that we thought it would end and probably the way that it should have ended is the way that it ended, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think the problem is because the show uh, has been so outstanding all four seasons, that became my baseline, and so my expectation and hope was that they would do something different and exceed that in some way or come up with a more clever way to end it than what you and I came up with on the fly here in the podcast. And because they didn't, I would say it was like a B-minus, C-plus ending. Right, right. Okay, well, that's a little harsh, I think. It is. I, I, I agreed to feeling like slightly underwhelmed, but I, I, you know, it's like one of those things, like, what do you want out of a TV show? I sat down with some friends, we watched for an hour and changed whatever it was, and we were just like into it the entire time. It was like watching a great sporting event, you know, where you're like, you know, like every, I, I was into it. I, I, but you, I think a setting, because I was by myself. Okay. I was, Abby was at the Taylor Swift show. Did she, did she go to like three, four of those? She went to two of the three. <laughs> okay. Uh, two of the best nights of her life, it sounds like. Um, <laughs> And so maybe it was just because by myself, but I kept feeling more the opposite, which was the clock's ticking. You just want to get to the end of No, I want you to make it, I want the show to get better. And I was I like, see. you're running out of time to make this a good episode. And then they ran out of time and sort of the, the shiv flipping on the tie breaking vote, like, okay, like it's clever enough. 
but is it like what I would have expected? It's sort of the big idea from the best writers on TV. No, I, I, I think it was, I think a B minus is a fair grade actually. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it is, you, you end with Kendall, he's kicked himself in the nuts again and he's sitting there and I guess he's going to hurl himself into the freaking Hudson river. Is that what's supposed to happen? The guy's sort yeah. of watching. He yeah. looked, there was, a, they, 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 there was they, a period a couple of seasons ago where it seemed like he might kill himself, but right. I, I feel like that's not in him. So, so, so that, so, so focusing on the roiling water is just, that's just like a metaphor for his mind. Like what, what's the, what's the point there? Yeah. I mean, the, I think the, the point is he's always going to be right at the cusp of it and never be able to, to win. He will always snatch uh defeat from the jaws of victory. And I think that's the point is him sort of realizing it. Cause he's, he's not, dumb right um he screwed up but he's not dumb and realizing it and yet also presumably realizing that moment it will always be like this i will never be able to fix it now which maybe does argue to hurl himself into the water although at that point he could say okay this thing is over i can really try to re-examine my life and my priorities and everything else and figure out how to be happy but of course they're not going to do that that, no, that thought he's going to try to take over the company would never um, occur to them you think he's going to still keep trying if the show were to keep going well, sure. I mean, look, we, what we know about Madsen is that he's a fuck up, right? He's sort of a fraud. So he, it, the, 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 the whole thing's not going to work. It's going to be like a time AOL thing, right, that falls back apart. So, um, Except half the money is in the share price, so it's not really in Kendall's interest to tank the share price. Well, I'm not saying he would do it on purpose. I'm just saying, like, the thing, it's not like, oh, they're going to live happily ever after now that Madsen has the company. Like, it's just going to be in, like a continuing okay, shit well, how, show. How about this? So, so there's Madsen has the company. Right. Right. So three of them lost. They're all out. None of them work at Waystar at Roy Clay anymore. Right. Shiv sort of does. In that her husband's is currently the CEO. Yeah. And she's sort of like there is the, you know, power behind the scenes. I don't know. I don't I mean, think so. They're in the car was, together. I think she was pretty neuter. I think she was in the car as the spouse relegated to her husband having to take the reins of power because she wasn't given it. So Although she, he owes her because she did it for him. Right. Like, he, he, I don't know if she had did it for, for him. I mean, she did. Here's what I thought I expected her to do, and she didn't, which was to say, all right, guys, if you don't want to run the company to Madsen, I'll vote for us, but I'm the CEO, not Kendall. Uh, I kind of thought she would pull that, and she didn't. Instead, she just sort of gave up. Yeah. Right? Um, so I guess here's my question for you. Of the three of them, which of the three is the most likely to say, okay, we were raised by wolves. Uh, we've gone about life the entire wrong way, but we're still relatively young. We can change things for the better by changing our our entire sort of mentality around life. Shiv one, Rome two, Kendall three. So Kendall three, I agree because it's just like he can't. Po he's so serious and he can't possibly conceive of a world where he his self perception is not the reality of it, even though it never actually is. Um, I might flip Roman. So Roman's crazy, right? Like he's the most outwardly damaged of the three. Wanted to hurt himself. Yeah. Um, at the same time, that might lead to sort of a little more openness to... He's bottoming out. Yeah, different types of therapies and approaches and all of that. And I don't know, I think Shiv just is sort of like Kendall where she just keeps striving for the brass ring and... I don't know if she ever gets there or not. Um, I asked this before, but I'm but I'm going to rephrase the question, and it's going to be our last succession question. So, okay. succession is a story. It's 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 based on real people, but it's thoroughly made up. Yeah. Um, so why do we watch it? I think because well, the other day we were talking about how art teaches us consistently 
that the endless pursuit of money and power and status does not make us happy. Despite and and yet, despite that, we don't really believe that, right? We still think that if we had that kind of money or status or power, we would know how to handle it well, and we would be happy, right? And so I think that that's the conundrum that we're stuck in, which is like, on one hand, we like to see them fail because we're not at that level of success, so therefore it makes us feel better about ourselves. On the other hand, we still aspire to what they have, not who they are necessarily, but what they have. The private jets. And, right, in fact, there was a good... In, a lot in, of private jets in that last in one. In the interview with um, the guys that played Tom and Greg, one of them made an interesting comment, which was like, in some ways, because we were always in these incredible settings for the locations, right? We were on these incredible yachts and mansions, and he's like... In some ways, actually, made me feel better because some of them, most of them, were so ugly and gaudy that I was like, I don't want to live here. And like, it actually made him. But but in some ways, by saying that, he kind of captured the point, which is, we both love to see them fail. We're jealous of them. We're envious of them. We feel morally superior to them. We secretly feel like we'd be able to handle it a lot better. Um, all those different things. And look, why is the show more popular among you know people living in Manhattan and Santa Monica than in Oklahoma, um, because we're more exposed to all this. We're more around it. Um, there's more of us who have, look, like, I don't know Rupert well, but I've met Rupert half a dozen times. I had lunch with him not that long ago. Like, it feels close enough to Did me. Did you ask him what he thought of succession? No. You know what? He's, I was, I was, at, was with some other people, and he's very old. Um, and uh, we were talking, but I, I, it was loud, and there was no real... I wasn't going to ask him about succession, I guess is the answer. <laughs> um, but, but with all that said, point being, I think because... Okay, let's say you're just a, like a lawyer at a law firm somewhere. You probably have a client that in some way is connected to a world like this, or a friend, or like, it, it, you know, it, it, in the kind of elite coastal bubbles, um, we are just close enough to the show to feel a level of connection, whereas if it is so far removed, like I finished the book um, Demon Copperhead over the weekend, it was sort of a David Copperfield version um, set in Appalachia in modern day, and it was amazing, by the way, great, great book. But like, if you live in Appalachia, you're probably not in any, you know, succession might as well be Star Trek or whatever, Battlestar Galactica or whatever, you know, whereas I think... But you're not reading that book either, right? Battlestar Galactica? No, Demon Copperhead. If you're in, in Appalachia. Appalachia, well, you know it's interesting. So the author Barbara Kingsolver, um, when I read her bio, she lives in Appalachia, right? Which explains why she understood it so incredibly well. Um, I don't know. I could see it being. I thought the, she lived, lived in Richmond, but maybe I, that's cool. cool. Maybe unless they're calling Richmond Appalachia. Um, <laughs> maybe it's the book that the kid that really wants to get out reads when right. they live in Appalachia. You know. Right. Um, and by the way, a hell of an indictment of, uh, of the succession world, too, um, in that book. In what regard? In, in the regard that her argument is, and by the way, what's so great about the book is like, she doesn't even really make the argument till the very end, so it doesn't in any way feel preachy or, um, but is that uh, basically the land economy, because it can't be monetized in the same way as sort of the idea economy, the services economy, um, was seen as only useful for a couple of things like tobacco or coal or whatever else. 
And so they didn't want, according to her theory, which is not crazy, people who live in those areas to actually become much better educated and have better lives because then they wouldn't be willing to work as coal miners and tobacco farmers and everything else. And so they sort of deliberately gutted all the infrastructure, the schools, the hospitals, everything else to keep people dependent on either needing those jobs or, or enrolling, enlisting in the military. Um, and then, you know, deliberately flooded counties like this fictional Lee County. I bet you it's not fictional. Lee County in... Um, Who deliber- deliberately did this? In, it, I think it's sort of a combination of corporate America, mainstream, the government, uh, pharma. You know, certainly Purdue takes a, a whack a couple of times in the book for flooding places like Lee County with, with OxyContin. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it certainly says that the broader world basically felt like the best way to maximize the utility of those areas was to basically, you know, keep people impoverished, impoverished um, and, and unaware. And so, um, yeah, so I, I, I think some people there will probably read it. But anyway, point being, like, you know, look, Demon Copperhead was written for people like you and me to sort of understand Appalachia a little better. I don't think Succession was written in a way to make people in Appalachia understand Manhattan better. <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, so I'm going to throw in one other sort of contextual point here, which is um, one of the one of the things we agreed we we're going to talk about was just this sort of like movement away from the humanities and English majors, um, and uh, and I guess more into the STEM, into science, technology, that kind of stuff. Um, that's just a contextual point um, because we're also going to be talking about what to read and and books you're reading and plan to read. Um, but I want to start with just a basic question on that, which is, um, should we care that young people aren't majoring in English? Yeah. I mean, yes or no, right? No, because it doesn't produce a vocational skill that you can use to turn around and go get a good paying job. And so STEM is far more likely to lead to that. Just like generally speaking, you can make a strong argument that this notion that everyone should get a liberal arts education and degree is really wrong because while it's sort of noble in certain ways, it doesn't prepare most people for actual careers that they would want to have. So they're deep in, in student debt without really you have an English degree, not without really the means to pay for uh, your lifestyle and student paying back your loans and, and everything else. So from that standpoint, no, we should have far more vocational schools and education um, and far less liberal arts education. With that said, at least for me personally, as someone who did get an English degree, I was in the creative writing program in college, um, it, it did prove very useful to me because it really taught me how to write. And I would say that being able to write has consistently given me an advantage in my career throughout um, in part simply because we teach writing so poorly in our schools that just the baseline, even for kids that are considered really smart, um, is very low. It's like when I was in law school, my grades were better than they should have been. And the reason why is even though I wasn't like a super serious student because I knew I was never going to practice law and I didn't really quite care what my grades were, um, I could just express whatever it was I wanted to say so much better than pretty much everyone else that I think I was sort of almost unfairly rewarded by the teachers who were just relieved to have something comprehensible um, to read for once. So I think that you, it probably gives you an academic advantage in all of the other subjects, number one. Number two, we talked about this a lot in this podcast, 
you know, the real secrets of success are not IQ and academic pedigree. It, it, it's, it's hustle and street smarts and communication skills. And writing is one component of all of that. And by the way, if you're reading constantly, that improves your, your verbal skills in general and your ability to talk. And so being able to convince people of things, being able to sell people things, um, you know, that is an incredibly valuable tool, far more than like an extra couple of IQ points. And so if better communication skills by training in school enables you to then be a better salesperson and a better communicator, um, I think there's a lot of economic value to that. So I guess it's funny. This is a way basically of saying, if you just bring it back to the previous conversation, if you're from Appalachia, you're probably better off STEM because the careers available to you most of the time are not going to be ones where having extra powers of persuasion in a boardroom are especially useful, right? Um, and maybe skills that go wasted. And if you are effectively already starting on second or third base, um, like our kids are, then, you know, an English degree might actually prove pretty useful. Now, there are exceptions all the way around to all of that, to be clear. But so logically speaking, I don't think it's a problem that fewer people are English majors. Um, personally speaking, I did find that really honing my communication skills um, gave me a significant advantage career-wise from then on out. Two points of view to respond to. Um, in uh, Maureen Dowd's column on this subject last week in the Times, she quotes the critic Leon Wieseltier. He says, given society's crave and worship of technology, are we going to trust the engineers and the capitalists to tell us what is right and wrong? Yeah, he really. I read that after you pointed it out, which I wasn't even aware that Maureen Dowd was still writing. Um, <laughs> she's never. She's stopped. really hung in there. You got to give her a lot of credit. I mean, how old is she? She's got to be eighty. No, no, she's not eighty. She's probably in her late sixties. Does her whole like I'm sassy thing still play when you're a senior citizen? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Does like, it? I don't think. I don't know. I hadn't read it until that. that I mean, I, I think you know. Talk about a good writer. I mean, whatever else you say about Maureen, she's a pretty good writer. Yeah, yeah. And, she's um, had a hell of a career. And she's uh, she's she can be very funny. So, so anyway, I no, I think that guy is exactly he literally by giving that quote as someone who both understands that you know who leon weaseltier is right nope oh he's a he's a a, a famous he was at the new republic forever he's a he 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 was like a real sort of icon when i was starting out in, in journalism because he was uh, an older guy who had these really um it was a mentor to many young writers and critics and stuff and then i think he had i think he had some I shouldn't. I shouldn't say because I don't remember the details. But he had some disgraceful exit. We will now defame uh, this person. No, I, I heard he killed a guy. <laughs> he killed a guy. But he's 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 one of the. He was he was he's sort of last of a generation of public intellectuals, and and uh, he wrote a book on on the Kaddish that I think he would probably um, probably like. Um, anyway, he's 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 an interesting, very smart guy. He, his name isn't used much. I think he and Marine are good friends and have been for a long time. So that's why she trots cool. him out here. Um, yeah. Anyway, but the, the, but po the, the his point, his point, the, the notion that I will say this because partially what you're saying about that book, Demon Copperhead, is exactly his point. You're, you're learning about about good and evil in that book. Yeah, you you are. Look, I, we're literally sitting in the bookstore that I own, so you're not going to get me to sit here and say that reading isn't really valuable. But at the same time, the way I took his point was a moral and good person is one who understands the liberal arts and doesn't debase themselves with money. Um, and someone who is in the sciences uh, just can't possibly understand. 
I mean, that's why everyone fucking hates people like Leon West Weasel Teal or whatever his name is to begin with, right? It's like this arrogant... The, talk about fucking someone probably not playing well in Appalachia. Let's, let's <laughs> trot him out, right? Like the notion that you can't understand right from wrong if you don't read. Like, quite frankly, you, you know what book covers right and wrong quite a bit that I think people in Appalachia do read? The Bible. Um, and so, you maybe, know... Maybe not anymore. I don't know. I religious, you know, pe- people are still going to church, uh, not synagogue in Appalachia, but they're going to church. Probably not much mosque. Um, so I, I don't know that that's true. That you need to be. It's sort of like when I do the mobile voting stuff, and people say to me like, "Oh, I don't know if all people should vote. Most people aren't that intelligent. They're yeah, educated." Yeah, you do hear that? Like, Fuck you. Like you know, the, their their instincts about life are just as valid as yours, maybe even more so because they're not quite so pretentious. So I, I don't know. Um, I, of course, I think that reading broadens your horizons and your viewpoints and everything else. Um, but the notion that only people with a Yale education degree uh, can distinguish right from wrong. I mean, you know, these are English departments filled with like professors for years who are like would just be drunk groping young female students all the time, right? <laughs> they're the they're the paradigm of morality. I don't think he's going that far, but I I, I, I take your point. Um, here's another. This is from Nathan Heller, Heller's story in the New Yorker on a much longer treatment of the same subject, from from I think it was in February, but. He quotes, I think this is a student. It's certainly someone talking about students. Um, I think the problem for the humanities is you can feel like you're really not going anywhere, and that's very scary. You write one essay better than the other one from one semester to the next. That's not the same as, you know, being able to solve this economics problem or code this thing or do policy analysis. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's true. Um, one quick point of policy analysis, which is just this is for the people in their late teens and 20s listening to this podcast. Um, everyone who wants to work in government thinks that what they want to do is policy. Um, that's supposed to be sort of the thing where it's like it's the most noble and high-minded and whatever else. And here's the reality. The people who make the decisions on what the actual policies are are the political people, not the policy people. The policy people write memos that the political people may or may not read. Um, and so... If you love some specific area and you just want to spend your entire career coming up with sort of arguments to do or not do something that someone else can decide what to do with, I I think going to policy school can make a lot of sense. But if your goal is to actually help write and choose the laws that govern society and hopefully can can change things, um, learn politics. That's a lot more useful than policy. Um, And getting back to the the broader point there, though, yeah, I mean, I, I could totally see that. On the other hand, I guess the, the argument that Leon and others would put forward would be a liberal arts education improves your communication skills, your analytical reasoning skills, um, things that just in most workplaces are very, very useful. And so that even though it's not as t- it's more intangible, it's still at the same time potentially very beneficial. But it, it may get back to the point from earlier, which is like, it's very, like I think about the, the, the kids that work at Tusk Strategies, right? Um, yeah, I think if they have really good analytical reasoning skills and really good communication skills, that they're going to succeed there. So then the question is, is working there sort of the baseline, right? Or is that so far above the baseline that training people to be successful in an environment that they're not going to get a job in any way? I don't know. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, look, if if what you want 
is is to know for a fact that the economy will absorb you when you are done with school. There are far better degrees to get than English. Okay, we're going to go through. Um, you gave me six books that are on your list of summer reading, all mm -hmm. all novels, I might add. Yeah, that, um, that surprise you? No, no, it doesn't surprise me. No. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll just I'll just mention the the title and the and the and the author, and you can give me a sentence or two about sure. why you're reading or why it's on your list. So the first one is All Sinners Bleed by S. A. Crosby. S. A. Crosby is one of the best crime writers in America. Uh, Black Top Wasteland is one of the best crime books I've ever read, um, and I just anything he writes I'm excited about. In fact, I was here at the store the other day meeting someone and they were late and I started just walking around and pulling out books to take home with me and I found one that he written that I hadn't Bradley's read. Bradley's the number one shoplifter in his own store. I'm definitely one. our best customer. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's funny. Also, they had a list of like our top selling books and they had mine, the fixer number one. I'm like, guys, it's just, it's, if we want to make this plausible, make it like number eight or something like that. Like number one is just ridiculous. Well, it must be number one if they put it there, right? Um, I think that... Did someone, did you come in and buy 20 copies the other day? So one, maybe it's possible. Occasionally, we do have some group or whatever that we send copies to, and so that might have happened. But it could also be um, like a few months into the store, I came in, I didn't see the book anywhere, and I said to Julie, like, it's not a great work of of, of art, but I own the store. I'm the one losing all the money running the store. You got to put my book in a more prominent place, and that might have been uh, heard a little too loudly. Now they put it number one. Yeah. Um, Let's have an investigation. So anyway, we'll but I, I, I did find an older essay, Crosby book that I, Crosby or Cosby, Crosby, Crosby that I was not aware of, and I was very excited to to grab it off the shelf. I'm just checking to make sure that yeah, it's essay Crosby. Yeah, but really like a great great crime writer. Uh, Mobility by Linda Keisling. Or yeah, did she write? And, and she wrote, is it The Shimmering State um, or maybe The Golden State? She wrote another book that I wrote. So a lot of this is just, you know, I read a book by somebody. I liked it. I certainly want to give it a try. And in some ways, my policy um, works really of towards, towards just not sticking with books, works really well in this regard. Because, okay, so sh she wrote a book that I liked. Um, I think it was The Golden State. And... Uh, therefore, I we got to get this right. It's Lydia Keesling. Yeah. Um, and it says, yes. So not Linda. Lydia. Lydia Keesling. Was that the book, though? Golden yeah, State. Golden State. Yeah, yeah right. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll give her 40 pages, right? And if I don't like it, um, I'll just put it down and read something else. So if, if you wrote a book that I liked, you kind of start off with an automatic 40 page lead. Uh, the Guest by Emma Klein. Yeah, I, I liked her her other book, and it got really good reviews, and, and it was sitting right in the, the main pile here at the store, and I grabbed it. And so um, it's definitely uh, – I, I started a book this morning, or, yeah, when I was working out, I was reading, called Going Zero, which is sort of a CIA spy thriller type book that I'll probably plow through pretty soon. It just seemed like a good way to clear my head after uh, Demon Copperhead. Mm -hmm. um, but um, – but yeah, I think I think Emma Klein is next. Um, the Terraformers by Annalie Newitz. Tell me a little more here. <laughs> I don't know. You didn't. Tell I me. don't remember what it was. I think I just liked the way the book sounds. I don't think I'd read anything by her before. Her name's not familiar at all. I think just I was going through lists of. Uh, I went through like NPR, Washington Post, The Times, L.A. Times, New York Post. Um, kind of summer books lists and just picked out stuff that I thought looked good. It is a sweeping, uplifting, and illuminating exploration of the future. She is known as a science fiction visionary, according to Amazon. 
Okay. It's a dazzling look at the distant future, says the Washington Post. All right. None of that. It begins nearly 60,000 years from now. All right. Yeah, look. you know That's a weird one for you, Bradley. I'm interested in the future, though. 60,000 years from now? I probably won't be around. No, maybe not. No Um, No matter how many steps I get. Drowning by T.J. Newman. Yeah, Flight Attendant was a great book that I'm pretty sure T.J. Newman wrote. And uh, and good TV. It's funny. Did you watch the show? No. The first season was excellent. Oh, yeah? Second season was unwatchable. It was one of those like, wow, how did you go from having such a good show to such a bad show? But I really enjoyed the first season, and I really enjoyed the book. um, And therefore, I'm, I'm signed up for the next one. All Night Pharmacy by Ruth Medievsky. I think that was another one that just sounded good to me without having any experience with, with the author itself. I agree. Um, I looked that one up, and I thought it, she, it says she as, actually works as a um, – hold on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to look up her, her, her bio. But her, um, she is a poet, essay, novelist, and when not writing, she works as an HIV and primary care clinical pharmacist. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, and, and the book has something to do with pharmacy, right? From what I recall, so it's called All Night Pharmacy. So yeah, I'm so guess I think it that's does, a right? yes, 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 right. I, I didn't remember the name when I just said that, but <laughs> I think the name might imply that pharmacy is involved somehow in the story. Um, okay, so just generally with this list, how is this? So there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just no. stuff that piqued your interest. Um, there's no nonfiction on there. No, I've I've been told that the MLK biography is really great, um, and I'm sure that it is. It. <sighs> You're not ready to do it. I so what are nonfiction books that I have read recently? I read Tim Irvin's book, which had him on the podcast uh-huh. the other day. Um, Kevin Kelly, who's the head of started Wired Magazine, he's a futurist. He wrote a book of like maxims. Um, I read that. Was that good? You know, I enjoyed I like it. Kevin it, Kelly it a took lot, like but... a, an hour. Right. Um, you know, it's probably a couple thousand words total. Um, but but you know, for a guy that has lived a very interesting life, and I listened to him on um, people I mostly admire, which is the Stephen. Levitt uh, podcast, part of the whole Freakonomic stuff, um, over the weekend. Yeah, he's a guy that seems to have a very interesting perspective on life, very open-minded, has done a lot of different things in his life. Um, so I thought that his wisdom was, you know, worth at least taking a look at. So yeah, I liked it. It's a long answer to a simple question. So now that you have your own store, how has your book selection methodology changed? Not that much, to be honest, because I wasn't like careful when I went to other by the way it's a lot cheaper to go to another bookstore and waste money and buy too many books than it is to own a bookstore just to be clear um so you're still better off doing the way I used to do it but I used to I I would walk into a bookstore and if if I was like going home or somewhere where I could just drop off a bunch of stuff I'd buy 10 12 books um so it's not that different you know my my 40 50 page limit trigger rule existed long before I opened up the store when you go over sales at the store with uh, Julie, the manager, what stands out? What sells more than you thought? What sells I, less? I don't go over sales with Julie. You don't? I get the monthly don't, you don't, number and that's it. You don't ask her like what's selling, what's not? I would think that'd be interesting. You know, nope. a, a, okay. a little bit, but at the same time, um, honestly, it's pretty depressing to mm-hmm. go through the monthly sales because they're not nearly enough. Right. And I'm okay psychologically with the commitment that I've made to this place and to the community and everything else and what it costs me to do it. And I feel like you don't the, need the details. I don't need to reopen my thought pattern here, and I feel like the details could only serve to do that. Uh, there are two big books coming out this fall about sort of Sam Bankman-Fried and the crypto collapse. Yeah, one by Michael Lewis, the other by a great Bloomberg reporter named Zeke Foe. Um, are you likely to read one or the other? Or neither? Yeah, I think I might. Because look, I read the Elizabeth Holmes book. I read one of the Adam Newman books. 
Um, you know, I, so I have read some of those. Uh, that's probably a couple more. And you like Michael Lewis generally? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, and a, a friend of mine's actually doing comms for Freed. So I, I've gotten some, you know, some insight a little bit. And he, he thinks the book will be not wildly negative simply because. This is Michael Lewis. Yeah. Book. Based on all of the interaction that they had with him, I think it's more of just like a study of this very unique personality more than anything else. Um, I don't really think about the other book at all. Um, but but look, I mean, it, it is Sam Bankman Freed is sort of an interesting phenomenon of how you can take intelligence, creativity, privilege. Um, and salesmanship, right, and put it all together in a way. And, and like, I'm not sure that him or Elizabeth Holmes or Adam Newman are unique, or they're just they're the the current generation of it, and they're doing it in a far more visible way because of the internet. Um, and there's always people who are just good at sort of packaging themselves and kind of some good sounding ideas that that may not actually mean anything, and and making a lot of money on it until someone finally catches on. So um, I'm not sure that that any of them are that unique. But with that said. You know, the, the way that he put this all together, I think, should be pretty interesting. And in a way, I kind of hope the conclusion isn't that he's just crazy. Because if he's just crazy, then you can't really learn that much from somebody who's just purely mentally unstable. If it's like, look, he might be a little unstable, but ultimately, these were the rationales he used. These are the choices he made. This is why. That, that could be really interesting to read and learn from. Um, do you ask people in job interviews what they're, what they're reading? No. I don't. Uh, I mean, that's not true. Sometimes I do. It, it comes up sometimes. Um, it depends on the job interview to a certain extent. And, and I think when I interview someone, they've been through a bunch of other people already. And so for me, it's less about are you qualified for the job because if somehow they made it to me without being qualified, we, we've got a much bigger problem than <laughs> hiring this person one way or the other. Um, so it's more of, do I think they would, I understand our environment, I understand our mentality, and I understand that in order to be successful at work, you have to like it. Um, do I think they would enjoy working in this environment? Do I think we would, collectively we, uh, would enjoy working with this person? And, and that's really what I'm trying to solve for when I interview people for a job. So yeah, it, 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 it can definitely come up. And look, I will tell you this, like we were in hiring someone for the, for the fun the other, uh, not the other day, like a month ago. And um I did ask a candidate a couple of questions that clearly were not on like the pre-approved list of questions. I basically asked her just to demonstrate some sort of on-the-spot kind of creative thinking, um, and she really struggled to do so. And once she struggled to do so, she was out of the running for the job. So um, I, I do think I, I will definitely mix it up, but I don't necessarily always ask that as a standard question. If, if in another context or that context, someone says, I don't enjoy reading, I can't remember the last book I read, sort of dismisses the whole like idea of doing it, is that a black mark against them as a person, oh, I, as a I, potential I, employee? I mean, I or think anything? what I would just say is like, okay, what do you do with your time, right? Um, and by the way, the answer might be, I work, in which case I may say, all right, you know, this isn't someone that I necessarily choose to be friends with, but they might be very useful in whatever role it is we're trying to fill. But I guess what I would worry about a bit is if they don't read, what else is there about their personality that would make them easier not to work with? But but look, we know plenty of, of difficult people who are avid readers and plenty of wonderful people who never pick up a book. And so, you know, it, it, it would not be a disqualifier for me. Um, one or both... 
a all-time recommendation for tech or politics books. Okay. So the best political book I've ever read still remains The Power Broker by Robert Caro. Okay. About kind Robert of an Moses. obvious choice. Kind of an but obvious you're gonna go choice. With it. Um, and, uh, you know, we talked about this on a podcast recently, you know, What Makes Sammy Run by Bud Schulberg right. um, and Augustus by John Williams were both books that were not sort of political or set in modern political times, mm -hmm. and yet I thought captured the ethos of politics very well. And when I was a kid, I remember I read Advising Consent. That was the first book about politics I ever read, and it really totally sucked me in, and here we are, you know, 40 years later, <laughs> still doing this shit. Um, so, so those would be some of them. I, I, I think Peter Thiel's Zero to One as sort of a actual book about learning about company creation and the founder mentality works pretty well. Now, Peter has a slightly romanticized view of it where he pays people to drop out of college and all of that. And, you know, that's uh, romanticized, you think? Well, I, I think there's this notion of like, you know, everyone can be Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates. Um, and that's not necessarily true. You can be Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates. And if you have a idea, an incredible talent and an idea for a product that's just sort of overwhelmingly useful, whether it's Windows or, or Facebook, um, then I think you can succeed. But, you know, one thing that that I've learned, and I bet Jordan would say the same thing, is there just is no one personality type for a founder um, that makes them successful, right? There are times where um, someone, we walk into a room and someone's got a lot of gray hair, and we kind of worry for a second, and then we realize there's they have exactly the right set of experience needed to pursue this particular opportunity. And there are times where someone is really young, but we decide that the hunger that they have and the vision they have and everything else outweighs the lack of experience. You know, both both cases, we'll try to pair them with other people on the team who can sort of compensate because none of us are sort of good at everything. Um, so therefore, while the Teal book, I think does explain a lot of what it takes to create something out of nothing, um, the, let me put in a sort of rejoinder that um, now having kind of talked to founders on an almost daily basis for the past seven or eight years or whatever it is, um, getting from zero to one is very, very hard. Lots of different personality types have succeeded at doing so. Um, I guess we should close with a plug for the bookstore since we are here. We didn't mention that at the top. Um, you mentioned it several times, but we're at 182 Orchard Street, PNT Knitwear. Yeah. Come on by, books, yeah, coffee, podcasts. right? I think if, if 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 we're just doing housekeeping, uh, of course, well, you got happy. some other good, you got some other stuff. Yeah, so one, come on by the the bookstore and housekeeping buy some books. at the end. And also, by the way, if you want to record a podcast, we're the only free podcast studio in New York City or anywhere that we're actually aware of, and just go on Painting Network and you you can sign up to use it. So that's number one. Um, number two, the June first, so the day after this runs, Lena Khan, who is the chair of the FTC, will be coming to PNT, uh, and I will be interviewing her. Uh, for an hour. Um, and we may do that as a podcast open too, to right? the public. I think we want to do it as a podcast. Um, but if you're around, uh, you got RSVP, but but then it's free. So come on by that. Um, third, uh, if you like this podcast, please rate and review it. But also what would really help out is if you would consider ordering a pre-order copy of my novel, Obvious in Hindsight. It comes out uh, on November 7th. Um, as much as it pains me to say it uh, from an algorithmic standpoint, ordering on Amazon probably does the most good for us. Um, so feel free to make it easy on yourself and do that. Um, yeah. And I, th I think I've run out of, uh, of plugs, of thing, things to plug. Yeah. You know, um, good. We'll see you next week. Brother. See you next week. Bye-bye. Right.